When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, Alex. Thank you. Except I'm heaping ashes on my head in shame. Oh, dear. <laughs> Would you Don't like to know that. why or shall I just leave it at that? <laughs> I think we should leave it at that and actually probably just close the podcast right on. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Why? What's happened? No, no, it's not that anything's happened. It's just that I have a little what's the word confession I suppose to make about something I said last week in the heat of the moment in the podcast you know we were talking about Einstein mm. and we we're talking about swang and Einstein didn't want any swang with sort of friction was it yes or sort of yeah. compulsions against you things that you have to do mm. and you mentioned zugzwang the German word the chess term which means that nobody on the board can move actually is it me with the ashes no, 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 it's me. It's definitely me. Zugzwang, I think, means when someone has to move, but whatever move they make will be detrimental to them. Oh. So I'm not completely sure whether it's that I make you make that move. I genuinely don't know. But what I do know is that I confidently and brilliantly leapt in and said, well, I think Zug is German for together. So maybe it means that together you're in a position. It doesn't. It just doesn't mean together at all. As anyone with any basic German, I just sort of thought about it afterwards, but too late, of course, to do anything about it. Well, this is all right for me because I don't have basic German, so I couldn't be expected to know. But let's be honest about this, Lucy. <laughs> I am the person who introduced the error, and yet I feel blithe about it. No, yours wasn't an error because you said, is it like Zugzwang, which it is. I didn't. No, 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 but you said, is it like that? And that was very good illuminative illuminatory <laughs> illuminating I, I don't say anything now very now, not to go at all culture war on this but if as I'm, I'm reading a you know a lot about what can we say the overrepresentation of men in the podcast world and all I'm going to say is that if we were two men doing a podcast together do you think we'd start our new episode talking about all the things we'd done wrong no I don't think we would I've answered that question for you and I also think that if anybody is to heap ashes on their head in shame, it should probably be our listeners who not a one of them has written in to point out our errors. I think that I did say, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, there you go. You opened the door and they didn't do it. 
Can I just say that Tsug means train or like a pull, like a force that pulls you? I think I was thinking of, well, I think I was thinking of something that means with, some means with. Anyway. Moving on. I'm going to move us on. I'm actually going to forbid you from getting the ashes out or the sackcloth come to that. I'm going to say that we live in such a, you use the word egregious, and I think people are so egregious about being wrong. We... I, I don't say we should join them because I think it's important to acknowledge your mistakes, but I do think one can go too far. We're terribly sorry. We got that wrong. Let's move on. On this week's show, Ascender Maxton Graham leads us up the garden path to meet the pioneering women of horticultural history. And Mary Beard joins us to survey two new additions to the Homeric landscape. Now, when I say I nearly nearly led us up the garden path. What I mean is that Mary is talking about a review by Nick Lowe. And I thought, that Nick Lowe, a brilliant singer-songwriter and also a TLS reviewer. I'm not right at all, am I, Lucy? <laughs> there are two. That, well, I'm sure there are more than two, but those two are separate people. It's yeah. classics Nick Lowe, not cruel to be kind Nick Lowe. There's one for the teenagers. But first, as regular listeners will know, Lucy and I like nothing more than nattering on about our gardens. And one thing I can safely say is that we don't worry about overdeveloping our muscles with all our efforts, but it transpires that a fear of the roughing up of the delicate female form was one of the objections to women becoming professional gardeners at the end of the 19th century. Fiona Davison's book, An Almost Impossible Thing, takes us back to a time when there were no places for women in horticultural colleges, no jobs for them as professional gardeners, and no encouragement for them to do anything as unladylike as picking up a spade. What changed? Isenda Maxton Graham has reviewed Fiona Davison's book and joins us now to explain more. Welcome, Isenda. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the book's subtitle, The Radical Lives of Britain's Pioneering Women Gardeners, tells us that things did change. But how did they? What started it, I wonder? The, the book's title comes from the, the immortal lines of Sir Joseph Hooker, the British botanist, who said, gardening, taken up as a hobby, when all the laborious work can be done by a man, is delightful. But as a life's work for a woman, it is an almost impossible thing. And as Fiona Davison sets out to show us in this lovely book, it was only an almost impossible thing, because actually at that early in the 1890s, things began to change. What happened was that a um, the Women's London Gardening Association, these wonderful little sort of institutions that were founded about that time, um, started in Lower Sloan Street in 1891. And they managed to persuade Swanley Horticultural College in Huxtable in Kent to create a few spaces for women students. So that was very exciting, except that, there, of course, there was, it was a man's college up to that moment. So they had to find somewhere for the young ladies to live. They had to ask around in the, in the village. And, and apparently a, a local widow of impeccable respectability offered to open a hostel and be the lady superintendent. So all was ready and they, the girls could start training there. Was it that thing, that kind of air of panic, like when women are, were allowed into in clubs or parliament or anything? And everyone goes, well, they can't because what about the toilets and where can they stay? Stories that I could lose, isn't it? That really yeah. is. Like they like what you used to put the spanner in the works, but no, the lady and superintendent got her act together. And one thing I love about this book is the photographs of the, a typical um, student's bedroom in the hostel. I'm, I'm an absolute sucker for prospectuses, old prospectuses, <laughs> and the darling little bedroom with the dug and basin and the vase of flowers on the chest of drawers and the, and the mirror, and how, how sweet it all is. And young women just desperate to get away from the enforced indoorsiness of their lives. Yes, and it, it had been, hadn't it? This 
feeling that women were just not suited to the hard labor, the menial labor of gardening. They could sort of direct male gardeners and male helpers, but they couldn't do it themselves. I wonder, was that also to do with the fact that actually that's rather convenient? You can keep them inside, you can keep them domestically focused, you can keep them as carers and all the other jobs that are involved. Famous well-known female gardeners such as Gertrude Jekyll never employed a woman in her gardens. And Ellen Wilmot, who's a horticulturist, um, wrote a woman would be utterly hopeless and unsafe in the borders. I think unsafe, meaning herbaceous borders, unsafe perhaps meaning that she might spot a, a man, a male gardener stripped to the waist. Oh, that kind of unsafe. Not that she'd make a terrible mistake with a hellebore or something. Cut her hand off with her spade. You mentioned as well in the piece Elizabeth and her German garden by Elizabeth von Arnim, which I read not long ago. And it is full of this, it's very hidebound, isn't it? It's Prussian society, so it's it's very uptight and very strict. And and you say how she's just she's always longing to to actually garden and she just can't. I sometimes literally ache with envy as I watch the men going about their pleasant work in the sunshine. It fills my soul to be up and doing too. And she sometimes went out in the in the middle of the night to do a bit of digging while the servants were asleep. So much was her itchy fingered urge to get out there. Exactly. Um. And in the, in this book, um, Fiona gave us some tips, examples of women, how they and, and the way different ways in which they managed to forge ahead. I, I wrote in my review that I can, one can only imagine that exhaustion with which they fell into bed after the, both the literal and metaphorical spade work they had to put in because there was a lot of spade work of both kinds to get any toe in the door of, of, of gardening. What were those first women like? What was the first intake at the Swanley Horticultural College in Kent like? I wonder what kind of social class they were, what age they were, these women. Yes, I think generally they were they were private students whose parents paid. Um, Madeleine Agar um, was one of the first to enrol, um, and she was I'm sure, at least her father was one of the founders of modern, of modern hockey. I like that fascinated here, um, but she was definitely one of the better off ones. And she and she had to buy all the items on the clothes list, including the Swanley stocking from the special glove and stocking shop on Bond Street. Um, and and also there were there was Gertrude Cope, who was from a, a lower social level. She'd helped her sister run a boarding house in Hastings. Um, and she got a £40 county scholarship for one year course at Swanley. So that just shows the social spectrum in a way. But she got a more prestigious job, actually, than, than Madeleine, I'd say, in a way, because Madeleine Agar's first job well, it was prestigious-ish. She worked at Wickham Abbey, the newly opened Wickham Abbey Girls Boarding School, doing the herbaceous borders and helping the school girls to tend their plots. Um, whereas Gertrude got a, um, a job at Kew, Kew Gardens, one of the gardening boys, they were called. And there's a lovely photograph of, of three of those gardening boys, including Gertrude, on the cover of the book with the hands, I think, hands in pockets, looking absolutely gorgeous. And there were people that visited the queue used to stare at them like animals in the zoo, apparently. And then there was a musical song that said, who wants to see blooms? Now you've got bloomers at queue because they were wearing some knickerbockery bloomers. It, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that they were called gardening boys. They couldn't even have been called gardening girls. But in fact, they were kind of luckier at Kew because somewhere like Chiswick, for example, they were they actually weren't allowed. They did they wouldn't employ any any women at all. Absolutely right. Yes, exactly. And I was quite shocked that Wisley, um, for example, did not take after. I think they perhaps they did have some during World War One, but they didn't then take women for another fifty eight years until nineteen seventy nine. So it just shows how it's absolutely yeah. incredible. So in all our lifetimes. Yes, exactly. That wasn't happening. The argument was for Wisley that it was hard enough to counter the belief that schools of horticulture were not places to send sons, because it was a bit that thought of as a bit of a kind of effeminate thing to do. To accept women would make it even worse. So that's, that's why it strikes me as the most incredibly weak argument. 
of many weak arguments. And but at the time, this this college, apart from these these places that wouldn't employ women, was there a lot of pushback more generally, or do you think sort of society more widely was quite encouraging? I think there definitely was some encouragement, and of course, it got divided very much into suffragists and and anti-suffragists that, that became very much part of it and I love their first gardening venture she had these two lovely couple well I didn't know whether they were a, a couple a, a sort of mar- as it were married women but they were very happy together and really honed in on the violet business um, because that was the colour of the suffragists and suffragettes and so they did very well with their Alan Brown violet nursery so it was in a fascinating time just when things were opening up and people were daring to try things and actually you could you could go and set up a, 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 a paradise with another woman which is a wonderful thing to think of, running a little business of your own. And it was just about happening, in spite of a lot of disapproval. Much of the time, the women who Fiona Davison writes about were expected to live their lives as carers and taking care of other sorts of domestic duties. And there's one you write about, Olive Cockerell, who was lucky enough to have the reformer Octavia Hill as her godmother. Tell us about her. That was a bit of a poor thing, I and mean, I just I I couldn't believe what she had to go through. And I and this was an absolute example of what was what was expected of unmarried daughters. Um, had to look after her first, had to look after her ill mother and grandmother. Then she was sent to the USA to help her brother and sister, um, in law with childcare with their childcare. The sister in law died, and Olive had to stay there looking after her sister in law's children for five years. Very homesick, and long to get come back to England. And thank goodness, Octavia Hill. I love the name Octavia Hill. It sounds like one of her. <laughs> horticultural areas that she created begged her to be allowed to come back and 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 she did come back and managed to rent a house in Sussex Crabbit Park and start a wonderful a French garden it's called a French garden because it's very small with high yield so that's the idea of a French garden only one acre but you could grow hundreds and thousands of lettuces even though one she did, did lose 15,000 lettuces to snails one one summer. Oh, my gosh. 15,000 in one in one season. It was a hard, hard life. And they had to get up. Suddenly, they got a huge order of carrots from Fortnum's. And they had to get up at crack of dawn and go around in the mud trying to dig up carrots. So it was no no easy life. But it was a, mm. nice than looking after your ill relatives in um, in, in America or ill mother. And then having to make your, your lettuces and your, your carrots um, thrive. You see, I mean, we are great great supporters of the snail aren't we Lucy on the podcast we are we have had um we had a, a snail a champion of snails on the podcast so we we now see them differently and we have to be much kinder to them don't we Alex <laughs> we we do but but I can see that that would be very I was really interested in Olive Cockerell because as you say she she goes and creates this nursery with her friend Helen Nussie who they've been schoolmates I think and they end up growing and selling vegetables in Sussex. But this seems to be a recurring theme throughout the book, that women were in couples. We don't know necessarily that they were romantic couples, but there was very definitely a comradeliness about these women gardeners and possibly also romantic and sexual relationships. Yeah, I found that very, very exciting, encouraging and lovely to think of, really, in those days of incredible buttoned upness, that this was possible. Mm, I wonder if it was possible because the idea of women in gardening was was just becoming possible, then maybe you could push at the boundaries a little bit there anyway. And so because, of you know, if a nursery run by women was a bit unusual, but then that would be OK if it was a couple of women as well, because it was a slightly odd thing to do. There wasn't a pattern already set for it by society. That was and a visit to Swanley Horticultural College was very impressed and said these women detest the useless, airless lives that custom would force on them and live for work and usefulness. 
mm. and they just get their whole veins blood in their veins just coursing through their veins longing to get out and work and and grow things I was very struck by one thing that you you note that's reported in the book that as soon as the women were allowed to the opportunity to become students, they excelled. So in 1907, I think it is, the first four places in the Royal Horticultural Exams go to women. But it just gets assumed that it's not because they've done particularly well or have a particular gift. It's because the men just kind of weren't really trying. They're just not not so good at exams. They've they've been doing other stuff with their time. The Journal of Horticulture wailed at this terrifying, awful news that the women had all come first. They said the assumption that the latter, the latter meaning women, are more clever than men hardly deserves consideration, since in all branches of mental activity, the best men can beat the best women. Probably the men apply their powers less seriously or in other directions. <laughs> so that has to be an excuse, doesn't it? Yes. And I read a book about young ladies becoming going into medicine in Scotland. That's just the same shock and horror when they started doing better than the men, and particularly in Scotland, actually, they couldn't take it. Was there also an assumption more widely that that a lot of the women who were finding success in this area were upper class, upper middle class, rich women who were kind of amusing themselves? They were dilettantes, in in other words. Two of these women teamed up with titled women to help with their cause. This is Edith Bradley. Edith Bradley, that's right. She teamed up, didn't she, with Daisy Warwick. The Countess of Warwick, um, who, who and they were both at first very kindred spirited. So I suppose upper middle class Edith or middle class Edith, daughter of an East India merchant, teamed up with the titled and grand Countess of Warwick, who had had an affair with Edward the Seventh and was now having an affair with some, somebody else, a friend of his. And um, and and at first they were very much united in their idea of starting an, an agricultural college. They bought Studley Castle, or the, the, the Countess did, in Warwickshire with three hundred and forty acres. Um, and there's an even better photograph of the even grander bedroom for a t- typical student in that um, perspective of that, but gave birth to the love child and began to lose interest. Um, so, and, and poor Edith, of course, had done all the work. And that's what I, I did find was a bit of a syndrome. So that happened with, to another, with another of my, the mother of the lovely women too, that you get a, a millionaire on board and then they do lose interest. Yes, um, it was. No, Edith, that's right. The same Edith then went on to attract an American millionaires who also became temp- temporarily fascinated and interested. And then she turned Studley Castle into a, a country club instead and came, became far more interested in motoring than in gardening. And I'm afraid poor Edith was left high and dry and really disappointed and had to start her own small holding in Maidstone. Was this interesting idea connected with her that for a time, you know, the Countess of Warwickshire had been interested in two before she grew tired or, or um, diverted to other more more pressing concerns? Was this idea of small holdings? And I was very interested in the fact that there was a, a sort of movement, a rising movement to get people into small holdings because of the fear that too many people were leaving the countryside and going to live in towns. Rather extraordinary idea, wasn't it? That there was this mm. wholesale evacuation from the villages to the towns was giving people real panic. It shows you there were just always absolute crises going on, weren't there? And that was the current crisis, villages being deserted. So it's thought that these more upper-class women could go and, and sort of bring back agriculture to the countryside which is a bit patronizing when you think really I'm sure there were lots of rural women who were incredibly good at agriculture and they didn't need these ladies coming in to show them how to do it so it was a bit of a dream a bit of a sort of Edwardian dream to come and do that and it didn't really take off actually you know that, that great cooperative movement whereby small holdings would be dotted around the country of, of refined ladies bringing back horticulture and agriculture 
with sort of intellectual backdrop to it didn't really take off I don't think it's a shame because it sounds lovely I'd love to be a, <laughs> love to run a small holding with an intellectual backdrop it does feel a bit like it's sort of in the air now though isn't it well except there isn't enough of it I would say mm. well no no I guess that's true but but you're, you're right there was that kind of as you say rather patronizing and another part of that and and this is another woman who, who crops up in the book Ada Turner who concentrates her efforts on on always sort of training women for life as emigrants in this in this frankly rather sort of imperialist way as you know you go out into the world and create you know productive gardens elsewhere in other parts of the empire wasn't there I couldn't believe it when I got to that platform. What next? Are they going to think of <laughs> So Isabel Turner, while they're winding down his stock breeding business in Lincolnshire, she was 32, still living at home with her parents. She was short and stocky and bred prize sheepdogs. She was always known as J.S. Turner. And she became a keen member of the movement to prepare women for colonial life. And Swanley Horticultural College opened its colonial branch in 1903, where students could live as far as possible under conditions of colonial life, <laughs> except that they were still in West Kent, as I say in my review. So the weather was a bit different from where. Actually, there were a rainy day in West Kent. And the idea was that they would go and reading new settlers in the colonies was really a plan. Um, and they needed to be learned, taught how to survive in the colonies um, while they waited for Mr. Wright to tend their land and carve joints. Apparently, they had to learn how to carve because it was thought there wouldn't be enough domestic help in the colonies. And um, they should go and contribute to the spade work of British expansion. Gosh, so everybody would have a little little British garden and a and a Sunday joint, no matter what, no matter where they were or what was going on. The reality, I'm afraid, is a little bit less glamorous than that because you start you start seeing advertisements for domestic helps. I'm afraid in the colonies, paid most payment employment was for mothers' helps and home helps. In fact, and you weren't exactly going to be given your own prairie. Isabel J.S. Turner, Isabel Turner's particular interest was in Canada. She favoured Canada as the ideal place to go, and she campaigned for homesteads to be awarded to women. And it happened to one or two, but it really didn't, again, didn't really take off. I just have to finish. You mentioned this really briefly. The Swanley stocking. Where do I get one? What is it? <laughs> it they sound amazing. What were they? A summer weight, extra long stocking from the London Glove Co Company on Bond Street. I mean, isn't that marvellous? I just, I, I, the Why idea... did they need a summer weight, extra long stocking then? To make it utterly invisible to any passing man, I suppose. How about that? Okay, but you so you had to wear stockings no matter how hot it was. Mm -hmm. you did. Oh, I see, and you might be kind of you know you, you might, might be, be bend, in the bending over your sweet yeah. peas. Oh, I see. Okay, that's it. The Swanley stocking. I know. I just would love to see a Swanley stocking. That is going to send me on a sort of eBay vintage hunt. I think. I wonder if any still exist. Listeners, please write in and tell us. But Senda Maxton Graham, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about these pioneering women gardeners. It's been great fun. Thank you. And I love the book. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Mary Beard on Homer Down the Rabbit Hole. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week... Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hold up. 
one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now there's a new translation of an old poem out, a poem so old we're not even sure who wrote it, really, or if they wrote it, but the poem still grips us. We're still obsessed, at least some of us, with what our reviewer Nick Lowe calls its greatness, its greatestness. The poem is the Iliad, so the presumed author is Homer. The new translation is by Emily Wilson, whose odyssey caused a great stir. And there's also a new book on Homer and the Iliad by Robin Lane Fox, the flamboyant, horse-riding, gardening, all-guns-blazing classics done. Who better to talk us through all this greatestness than Mary Beard, the TLS's classics editor? We're delighted to have her with us today. Many thanks for joining us, Mary. Thank you for inviting me. We're always absolutely thrilled if you can come on. <laughs> we need you for this. There's a lot of there's a lot of meaty stuff going on, isn't there? Because our, the, our reviewer, Nick Lowe, he calls, right at the beginning of his piece, he calls the world of the Iliad and the Odyssey a rabbit hole. Now, what, what do you think he means by that? I think what he's trying to say is that as soon as you scratch the surface of these two poems, Homer's epics written at the, composed, I should say, at the end of mm. the uh, 8th century BCE, you get it actually enmeshed in theories, in different people's version of what Homer is, who Homer was, who Homer might be, whether Homer existed at all, whether Homer was, you know, a committee of bards, and that you start from what appears, I think, from the outside to be you know, some of the founding moments of Western literature, the Iliad, in a sense, being the earliest work of Western literature, but you get kind of pummeled by the different versions of, of of how we now see him and the theories that have you know flourished for centuries you know and then you think oh my goodness me I can't escape from this you know and, and in a way I've lost the poem now because I'm drowning in everybody's competing versions of how to think about it I think that's what he's meaning Mary, are those versions and is that competition and all that noise that might drown out the poem, is that at a sort of high watermark now or has it had kind of peaks and troughs over the centuries? I don't think it's any higher now than it was. I think the point is that from the Roman world, people were wondering about who Homer was, um, where he lived, why he wrote what he was really talking about. And they were doing their own versions of Homer. I mean, you know, Virgil's Aeneid, 
is in some ways a version of Homer which puts together the Iliad and the Odyssey into a complete single poem. So there were kind of Christopher Logues in the Roman world who did these wonderful riffs on Homer and particularly on, on the Iliad. Now, you know, it comes up and down and I think in a sense, partly because of the way we've been so interested recently in thinking about partly the gendering of these mythical stories. Um, there have been loads and loads of attempts, really good in some cases, I think, to reinsert a female vision into the Homeric poems, whether in novels or in verse. Um, so I think it's I think it is quite edgy at the moment, but but we haven't invented the rabbit hole. I think the Romans were already in Lowe's rabbit hole you know, two thousand years ago. Mm. And in the rabbit hole, so our reviewer says he says that both Emily Wilson and Robin Lane Fox they have a sort of personal Iliad. Is this what happens with Homer? Do you think that everyone sort of has their own version of it, their own theories, their own their own worldview of it. Do, do you think it happens more with other works or is this just what everyone does with all the books they love? Well, I think Homer has become peculiarly sanctified. And I think in a way the Odyssey is different from the Iliad. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be terribly, terribly naive at this point and say that, that actually I have to confess that I prefer the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus's return home to his long-suffering wife, Penelope after the end of the Trojan War, going through all the adventures and all the problems about what it is to make a homecoming. And I think, you know, if I have a desert island book, it's always the Odyssey for me. But I've also had it drummed into me that that's a rather unsophisticated choice and that people who you know, really get the problems of humanity, who really get what Greek poetry is all about, they go first to the Iliad, because the Iliad is about survival or not survival, death, destruction, how you can be a hero in the middle of war, what it is to be a good hero, what it is, what it is to be a king, what it is to be best. And it's in some ways it's a, a very odd poem. Because when you say to people, the Iliad is about the, the Trojan War, well, it is about the Trojan War, but it's about only a few weeks in the middle. I mean, you'd expect a poem about the Trojan War to have all those famous bits like Virgil has. You know, the, the Trojan horse is going to come in. Uh, we're going to learn about how Paris went off with Helen and started the whole thing. But we're actually mm. have a snapshot of conflict between the superhero Achilles and the super king Agamemnon. And in the course of it, Achilles's best friend Patroclus dies, killed by Hector, and Achilles then kills the Trojan prince Hector, whose body is finally ransomed. It's about. So the, the poem is a it's strangely postmodern. You know, it's not the story of the war, it's a story of a very small slice of the war in which mm. we're asked to think you know what can forgiveness be in war will um will achilles ransom the body of uh hector to his father priam you know what is it with these guys who are 
who are <laughs> standing on their high horses about their honor and their prestige. You know, what is it to be a hero? How weak are they underneath? How ordinary are these apparent uh, big men? I was really interested in in the review, in Nick Lowe's review, which was very strikingly written, I thought. I mean, really intriguingly so. And he almost seemed to be saying, as you, as you said, it was a more sophisticated version, in a way, of good and evil. It almost, in his description, seemed as if it was exploring the whole idea of alienation from society. Um, he talked about the sort of consensual fiction of the rules that a society lives by and actually how much worse it is to live beyond them whereas he seems to say the odyssey we know what's good what's bad who's a hero and and who isn't is it that much more sort of metaphysical in a way much more philosophically abstruse Yes, I think I've got to accept that, which is why I partly apologised about preferring the, the Odyssey. I don't think you have to apologise. I think James <laughs> Joyce might agree with you, for instance. I think you've got some people well, I was, on your Actually, side, I was though. thinking about Joyce because I thought this is just surely something that happens with every great writer, that there's, you know, everybody will say, well, of course, we all love Ulysses, but, you know, you've really got to get your head around Finnegan's Wake. You yes. know, there's always that sort of, oh, well, exactly, that's the real jewel in, in any writer's canon. That's right. But I, I suppose I'm just talking with the wounds of being a classicist for 40 years who's never quite been able to join in the Iliad game. I see it. I understand it. I intellectually see what the whole issues about the Iliad are and why it is a great poem about the biggest kind of set of values and about the biggest problems uh, in human existence. Namely, we all go to die in the end. And I, I see that. It's just that I instinctively, you know, as I say, on my desert island, I pick up the Odyssey. But I think what's interesting about the review in some ways is that you say it's very strikingly written. And I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a kind of it's a mini work of art in itself. In some ways, it's quite a technical review. And I think what Lowe is trying to do for us is to say when a standard reviewer, me, let's say me, you know, I get two books about Homer to review, two books, a translation of the Iliad and a book on the Iliad. You know, I think an appalling sort of cloud of dutifulness often falls over the reviewer, you know, to say, this is, of course, one of the greatest, if not the greatest works of Western literature, you know, and then we trot through all the kind of things that we think we know about the Iliad. And, you know, in the end, it's, it's quite easy to review books on Homer being a bit boring. And I think that what Lowe is trying to do is to say, actually, there's something really interesting here. And our engagement with the Iliad is interesting. The Iliad itself is interesting. And I think he's trying to sort of jolt us out of our sense of <sighs> big breath. This is the classic poem to end all classic poems. Mm. And I will now go on to autopilot about uh, classic poetry. And, you know, I think you know, when I first got the review, it came to me, I read it and I, I just found the first paragraph. I thought, you know, people usually start reviews of home are talking about rabbit holes. <laughs> you know, that is not, and, and actually, I then started to think that I saw what what he was trying to say. And I was in some ways very pleased that that he kind of rejected that that sense of kind of duty. And it's like forelock tugging we have about Homer. 
Yeah, there's a kind of idea that you have to have a respectful distance and you have to go, well, first of all, obviously, you know, we must treat it with reverence. Exactly. And I think what's great about Lowe is you kind of feel that he's, you know, he's partly in that rabbit hole too, but he can see that where he is, you know, he's got one eye open and, and, and seeing how problematic our engagement with Homer is. And he's trying to write in a way to, uh, to kind of, prod us out of our usual assumptions about not just how you talk about Homer, but how you talk about people who write about Homer. Mm, mm. Well, he's very funny about the people who write about Homer when he's talking particularly about Robin Lane Fox. And he's, he sort of almost inhabits Homer himself, he yes. seems to say, Nico. <laughs> yes, there's a good bit, isn't it, where Lane Fox tells us that in 1976, was it, he ran naked round the walls of Troy. Yes because that's what Achilles did, or Hector did, both of them, just to sort of, you know, check out how long it would take. I mean, this is method classicism gone too far, <laughs> surely, Mary. I would never want to second-guess what goes through Robin Lane Fox's mind. And, <laughs> you know, he's the man who, you know, apparently for, was an advisor to film on Alexander the Great and demanded to be an extra on horseback. And got it. Demanded and got it. It is said, got it. Yeah. And, and I think that... I mean, he's been a wonderfully, you know, maverick, charismatic, slightly offbeat, but always kind of utterly engaging classicist. Now, he's now retired from his job in Oxford, but he's still writing a lot. And I almost always disagree with Lane Fox, with almost everything he writes. I think, I don't agree with this. But my goodness, you know, he draws you in. He, you know, he's a bit like Lowe. He makes you think about things you thought you knew in a different way. And there he is. And, you know, as Lowe says, he's he's given us a, a vision of Homer, who he believes kind of really existed and dictated the poem to his sons. And it, it was kind of performed in front of the army. I mean, I think this is, in some ways I think this is all bats, but you're drawn along into his version of the story, the story of Homer. And then you discover that, of course, there are all kinds of bits of Homer that are just like Lane Fox. You know, you know, Homer is even occasionally almost a gardener. And, you know, one thing we know about Lane Fox is his gardening correspondence of the FT. Yeah, I've read lots of his gardening work. He gives Prozac to badgers, or he did once anyway. It tells you all about <laughs> what happens. Well, I hope Homer never did that. But you know, we've got the, you know, the horseman, the huntsman, um, the intellectual and the gardener. And I think what Lowe helps us see is the the processes by which Lane Fox projects himself onto Homer. And in some ways, I think that's what, what everybody does, or they project their culture and their counterculture onto Homer. You know, just when, like, Samuel Butler in the, well, late, must be late 19th century, decided that the Odyssey was written by a woman. Now, Samuel Butler was not a woman, but he, he, he saw that it was possible to unpick and to, to be the satirist who would unpick what, what, in that case, the Odyssey was all about and would give you a different author, a female author. Mm. Actually, I must say, just to correct myself, because I'm constantly making mistakes, um, Lane Fox ran around the, the walls of Troy because Alexander did, because that's, that was in the Alexander phase. Mind you, I tell you, you you were right in a way, Lucy, because uh, you know both Achilles and 
have gone round and round the walls of Troy. <laughs> and of course, uh, Achilles drags the body of Hector, yes, the dead yeah. Hector. We've got to hope that Robin and Fox didn't do that too. Mary, thank you so much for, for talking to us about it. But we have to go from Greece to Rome. We do. Oh, we have to switch civilizations. Briefly. We have to. We cannot <laughs> let you go without mentioning your book, Emperor of Rome, which is just out. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for doing that. And it was reviewed in the TLS. And, uh, I, I was very pleased that it was a favourable review. and But I was also favourable that uh, the reviewer, Clifford Ando from America, actually engaged not always in total agreement. And I think that it's very instructive, particularly when you're a reviews editor, to be reviewed yourself because mm. you find out what it is like being the recipient of this kind of criticism. And I think that uh, many people have said to me, and I felt very much um, in the review by Ando, that what the reviewee is looking for is not actually total agreement you know you know brilliant marvelous couldn't be bettered they're looking for someone who's engaged with the argument and I think that's what Lowe does in the Iliad books and it's what Clifford Ando did with my book and you know I'd, I'm going to go away and think about some of the the points he made which weren't hostile but were you know suggesting a different viewpoint mm. but I, I was very pleased in a way that he, he 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 kind of got what I was trying to do, which was to go beyond biography, go beyond you know the idea that the only way of understanding the succession of Roman emperors was to you know know exactly what Claudius did and then what Nero did and then what happened next, and that you could actually you you didn't have to be absolutely besotted with biographical detail but and this is this is a bit of a struggle for me in the end but you also had to see that the ancient writers themselves were talking about these people as people probably hugely inaccurately but insistently and part of what I was wanting to do in the book was to say well all these amazing anecdotes, uh, unbelievable anecdotes about Roman emperors, you know, showering their guests with rose petals so that they smother and die, you know, that kind of stabbing flies with their stylus pens, etc. That they are actually at some level telling us something about an ancient critique of imperial power rather than being literally true. And I was really pleased to see that Ando kind of, you know, because you, you, you do always wonder if, if you don't if you don't really kind of hammer home, you know, a, a very tough lesson at the end of each chapter. You know, thus we see that. It was just wonderful to find that that Ando saw that that's what what I'd I'd been trying to do. So I felt I'd learnt from Ando's review, and I was really very grateful at his engagement. And I thought it was an absolutely classic review of what I think is the the kind of obeying Beard's laws for reviewers, really, which is make sure that anything you say about a book, you could always say to the author, to their face. 
Yes. <laughs> as yeah. well as just anonymously on the page. And if yeah. any review lives up to that, and I think most of them do, but mm. not all, I think, you know, the, the whole reviewing game comes out ahead and is really useful. And is more of an exchange, as you say, an exchange of kind of ideas and engagement and thought than kind of point scoring or... Or, yeah. or showing how much you know, or you know that kind of yes, thing. or just being loathsomely flattering. Well, you might say, I suppose. Mm. We'll be, I mean, no, I think it's quite difficult to be loath, loathsomely flattering to somebody's face. Actually, mm. so, <laughs> I haven't tried it recently. I must. I, I must say, I thought your book was quite the best book I've ever read. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> hard to See, say this that. is the issue. If I had written a book, that is exactly what I would want people to say to me, <laughs> which is why. I wouldn't be very good at writing them, but but Mary, that that's that's such an interesting um, idea. I must pin those reviewers rules up um, over mm, my beard desk. law. That was just beard such law. a, such a fascinating law. fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Mary. Very nice to join. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mary Beard and Senda Maxton Graham. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.